I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. To begin... I'll admit that we were hiking, not hunting. I was with my brother-in-law. In the Appalachians, it's usually snowy in December, but that year it was a constant 40 female or so, and too foggy to see very well. We made our way into a dense rainforest area and found what looked like an extremely overgrown, rarely trodden erosion forming a path. This didn't make sense. It was on the back of an inconvenient mountain peak very craggy, and not on the way to anywhere, not even another trail. So we followed it. The deciduous canopy lay rotting on the winter ground, but little sunlight broke through anyway due to the deep fog and mountain shadow. It felt haunted. We descended into a hollow with a small creek at the bottom and rounded a bend into a dense clump of rhododendron. Inside this rhododendron brush, we started to see weird things like decaying rope, rusted metal, paracord, and supplies. Then the trail ended. Between two oak trees that formed a window through the brush, we could see a rusted body of metal with face-sized holes of glass on the sides. We made out the shape of a small plane from the scattered pieces. 
The body was only in two pieces, but the wings were unrecognizable. There was a bit of graffiti on the plane, but not as much as you would expect. It had clearly been there for a while, but some of the original gear was still in the body. I wrote down the number on the side for reference. When I got home, I googled the plane number and found a result. Accident Report March 1977, Western North Carolina Damage beyond repair One passenger One fatality Body recovered Plane unsalvageable We found the plane in 2016. That wreckage had been left to rot for 39 years and some of the gear still had not been stolen. I know it was only one death, but that place had a deeply unsettling aura. I am not superstitious. I do not believe in ghosts, but there was something strange about that place and I won't forget it. I didn't crawl into the plane's body, both out of fear and because I wanted to be respectful to whoever died there, but I did take pictures of it all from the outside. To give you some context, in 2021 I got my first job as an order picker in a food processing company. Being a very unsocial person, I managed to negotiate with my boss to work with a small night shift 10pm to 6am. It's quite ridiculous because there's nothing good about being an order picker when you compare it with other jobs, but for me it was heaven, I could work on my own without having to interact with other people. One evening, my father dropped me off in front of the company at 9 p.m. and left. He couldn't take me any later because he was too tired to drive any later that night. So I sit down on the ground next to the building and start lighting up a cigarette and hanging out on my phone. A few minutes later, a man emerges from the darkness, well-dressed and well-groomed and carrying a rucksack. He walks over to sit on the ground next to me. At the time, he looked like an ordinary employee so I thought he must have forgotten a file and come back to get it. But the strange thing was that the building was still open, so the man could have gone straight in to get his papers. When I remembered, I was really scared and wondered what this man wanted and why he was sitting so close to me. Being paranoid by nature, I imagined all sorts of creepy things he could do to attack me. But fortunately, he didn't do anything. He just sat there and didn't move an inch as if he'd become a statue. After several minutes of silence during which I stressed, and he did literally nothing, it was 9.50 p.m. So I entered the building, and the man did the same. I was even more worried, but then I remembered that the building had security cameras, and that reassured me after all. Why would he attack me in the building which is secured by cameras when outside there were none? I made my way to the changing rooms to change into my prep outfit, and saw that he'd taken a different one that led to the offices. This reassured me a little, as it confirmed my theory that he was just an employee. Throughout my evening at work, I thought about this man and couldn't stop wondering why he had waited on the floor with me. One of the most likely scenarios I thought of was that he probably thought the door was closed, and that I was waiting to be let in, and that by instinct he just sat down and waited with me without saying anything. For most of my shift, I was alone in my area and continued to work, except that at one point I heard a man coughing and turning around, I saw him. The man stood there, straight as an eye, staring at me. When I noticed he was staring at me, I jumped up and asked, Can I help you? 
But the man said nothing and continued to stare at me blankly. After about two minutes, which seemed like hours, he walked towards me. My instincts were screaming at me to run away from this man, but I couldn't, I was stunned, and when he was less than two meters away, he put his hand in his pocket. I thought he was going to pull out a knife or something and stab me, but instead he pulled out a pack of cigarettes, still intact, handed them to me and walked out. It was the same brand as the one I'd been smoking, but it didn't belong to me, for the simple reason that I buy my cigarette packs individually. And once this one is empty, I go and buy another, but I never buy several packs at the same time. What's more, he could never have known what brand it was, since I didn't take my pack out in front of him. After that, I never saw him again. I moved to another area that evening to talk to other colleagues, but they were dubious about my story. I also tried to tell my superiors, but they didn't believe me either, because you need an access car to enter the building and according to them, if this stranger was able to get in, he probably had one. The problem was that I was the one who opened the door, and the man simply walked through before it closed. Nevertheless, I continued to work there until the end of my contract, but I still don't know who this man is or what he wanted from me. Why did he sit so still next to me that night? Why did he follow me into an employee area? Why did he watch me for so long without saying a word? And why did he give me that unopened pack of cigarettes? My dad spent years at sea and has many stories from his time on tanker ships as an engineer. One time the ship was being slowed down by something they couldn't explain, mechanically fine. Turns out they had a large dead whale wrapped around the bow of the ship, slowing them down. But the creepiest story was a simple one. The crew was shark fishing off the bank of a smaller tanker ship, basically attaching meat chunks to hooks and throwing them off the back to trawl in the ocean southeast of Sea Australia area. My dad for fun made up this large steel alloy, described it as being incredibly durable hook to use. They attach a large chunk of meat to it and throw it off the back. A while later they haul it back in, only to find the meat is gone and the hook is bent completely straight. There was nothing it could have snagged on in the deep ocean as the boat was driving through. My dad and the crew were sufficiently unnerved to think that something large down there could bend a large hook like that. Yesterday I took my son fishing. He wanted to go to a nearby lake that we haven't been to in quite some time. It's not known to be a great area. For some background, the last time we went, about a year ago, a car drove by and screamed, nice ass, at me while I stood there with my young son. This kind of garbage behavior is unfortunately expected in the area. It's also known to be a late night hookup spot as well as a late night drug deal location. Due to the lake's reputation, I had made a deal with my dad that I wouldn't stay there past 4 p.m. without him. On to the story. My 12-year-old son, who looks much younger than he is, and I pulled up at our favorite fishing spot, a small pond on the opposite side of the road as the lake. Almost immediately, an older gentleman approached us asking if there were fish in the pond. I replied that we had just gotten started, so nothing yet, but that we had caught fish in the pond on plenty of other occasions. He thanked us for the information and returned to his spot on the other side of the road. 
About 15 minutes later, another younger man approaches the older man with a dog. I can see and hear them chatting, but they've made no move to involve us in the conversation, which I'm glad for. I just want to enjoy a day with my son. Unfortunately, the water in the pond was incredibly low and murky, and I could tell we weren't going to have any luck. I tell my son to pack it up and we'll try another spot on the other side of the lake. As we begin packing our gear into the trunk, the younger man yells over, sorry if my dog and I ran you off. I tell him it's no problem, and we were simply moving to a better fishing spot. He then starts telling me how nice it is to see a mom taking her kid fishing, how you don't see that very often, etc. I get this a lot, so I'm pretty used to it. We have a short conversation about it as I pack up, and I then move towards the driver's side doors to depart. Before I can leave, the younger man starts up another conversation, this time asking me how old I think he is. This feels strange to me, but I'm nice to a fault sometimes, so I answer his question. I tell him I'm a horrible judge of age, but maybe 25. He tells me he's 38, and I'm too kind, and I laugh it off saying something like, I work with teenagers, so they always guess me well above my age, just to be mean. He asks where I work and I stupidly tell him my city. Turns out he lives there too and starts going on and on about how he got a free apartment on such and such street because his baby mama kicked him out of their house. I think he's talking about some kind of government assistance program. Weird flex, but okay man. At this point, I'm standing by the car door with my hand on the handle, and my son is already in the back seat. This guy can't take the hint and starts telling me all about his awful baby mama and how women are supposed to be submissive, quiet, and do what they're told. He specifically said, I mean, it's cool that you can bait a hook or whatever, but you're still a woman. Now my alarm bells are blaring. This guy struck up a conversation by commending me for doing a typically dad thing with my kid. Now he's putting me down for the same thing. He's gone from being overly friendly and complimentary to agitated and ranting. I should have been rude and just got in the car and left, but I've unfortunately been conditioned like many women to be polite even when we're uncomfortable. Instead, I start making comments in the hopes he'll see I'm not some meek submissive woman who's going to agree with him. After all, I'm a tatted up chick with an eyebrow piercing and two lip piercings. I don't exactly look like a submissive little housewife. I guess I was trying to make him just as uncomfortable as he made me in the hopes he'd leave me alone. After he says women shouldn't be loud or opinionated, I tell him, oh, well, you wouldn't like me at all. He tries to backpedal saying, I mean, it's okay to be loud, I guess, but don't try that with your man, you know, I say. My man doesn't tell me shit. I do what I want. This kind of back and forth goes on for a while before he finally shakes his head and says, I just don't understand what kind of woman would act like that. I reply, a strong one. As soon as the words left my mouth, the older gentleman yells from his spot on the bank, Yeah, say that again, honey. This distracted the creep long enough for me to hop in the car and lock the doors. I still don't feel safe though. Unbeknownst to Creepazoid, only two of my car doors actually have functioning locks, but at least they're the two on his side. I put the key in the ignition and turn. No dice. Nothing. Of all the times for my car to act up, 
it chooses now. Panic has now set in. As I repeatedly try to start my car, I can see him out of the corner of my eye. He's taken notice of my car troubles and is trying to get my attention. As he takes a few steps towards my car, the engine finally roars to life and I peel out of there. Only then do I let my composure crumble and have a long talk with my son about what just happened. To the older gentleman who took notice of my discomfort and provided a distraction, I'd gladly meet with you again any day. To the younger, misogynistic creep, I don't know if I was actually in any danger from you, but my gut said I was. Let's never meet again. Oh, and to my dad, I'll make you a new deal. I'm never going to that lake alone again, regardless of the time of day. Probably too late chime in and not me. But back in the 70s, my father used to fly freelance charter jobs. One job was flying a dead guy to his funeral destination. On the way there, he ran into some bad weather. Turbulence ensued. He started hearing a strange sound, a human sound. The dead guy behind him was gasping, moaning. Sounded like a forceful her, her. Before you start thinking the dead guy wasn't actually dead, he was. The rough turbulence was forcing air out of the cadaver's lungs, producing the sound. This is a true story I long awaited to share with your community. So last month I had another encounter with Bigfoot. I was out elk hunting near the Oregon coast, exploring the mountains behind Cannon Beach. I had reached the area near Grassy Lake, accessed by Buchanan Creek Road just past the fish hatchery. As luck would have it, I had spotted a herd of 25 elk emerging from a thicket and managed to shoot a bull. After gutting and quartering the elk, I decided to do some further exploration in the vicinity with my 1989 Ford Escort. Having some time to spare, I grabbed my fishing pole and began ascending towards Grassy Lake. However, before I could get too far away from my car, I heard a strange sound coming from about 250-300 yards away. Curiosity peaked, I noticed a distinct hump amidst a grove of young Christmas trees, about eight half feet tall. Intrigued, I returned to my car to retrieve my rifle and peered at the hump through my 35 power scope. To my surprise, I observed a hand rising up, pushing one of the trees down. At that moment, I thought I was merely witnessing the rear end of a bear. I continued observing for about an hour and a half, convinced that the bear was unaware of my presence. As a light rain mixed with snow began to fall, I grew somewhat bored and decided to honk the horn of my car. Instantly, the creature's head shot up, towering a foot and a half above the trees. It was then that I realized I was looking at another one of those things. After scanning its surroundings, the head returned to its previous activities completely disregarding my presence. Another half an hour went by, and the creature remained motionless. I decided to walk up the road behind the Bigfoot on a cliff to get a closer look at what it was doing. The creature was chattering, emitting deep, hollow noises resembling pig grunts. Even from a distance of 150-200 yards, I could see its hands engaged in some sort of activity. I noticed another white truck passing along the road, engaging in what appeared to be road hunting. 
Sensing the approaching vehicle, the Bigfoot lowered itself to the ground until the truck had passed, and then it rose back up. Frustrated by the interruption, I fired a rifle bullet into the air. Startled, the creature's head snapped back up, its gaze frantically searching the surroundings. It locked eyes with me, seemingly unbothered by my presence, as if it couldn't care less who saw it. The creature continued flipping its arm upwards, chattering and stomping its foot, as if urging me to leave. To further deter it, I fired a second round. It shot me a disdainful look before finally departing, sprinting towards a nearby hillside ridge with astonishing speed. It effortlessly traversed the mildly rough terrain in a mere minute and a half before disappearing into the steep Oliver Canyon. The ravine, with its 200-foot depth, provided me with a glimpse of the creature as it moved further into the distant forest, eventually vanishing from sight. Intrigued, I descended to investigate what the Bigfoot had been doing. To my astonishment, I discovered a dead coyote caught in an animal trap. The coyote's neck was broken, with a pool of blood and scattered coyote hair surrounding it. The creature had devoured the entrails and rear half of the animal, leaving only the head and front legs behind. Perhaps if I hadn't scared it away, it would have finished its meal. Coyote hind legs are said to be particularly tender, while the front legs are more muscular. As darkness settled in, I made my way back, planning to return the next day. When I returned to the site the following day, I discovered 24-inch long footprints left behind by the towering 10-foot-tall Bigfoot. Additionally, I found 10 strands of 5-inch long hairs clinging to a tree branch. As I reached the base of the 200-foot ravine where the Bigfoot had made its impressive jump, I encountered two deep footprints embedded in the soil. Intrigued, I decided to follow the creature's trail back into the hills. The path exuded a sweet, putrid stench reminiscent of something deceased. Eventually, I stumbled upon a cave, fairly spacious inside, with a pool of water sourced from a nearby spring. It appeared as though something had slept there, though I couldn't rule out the possibility of it being a bear's den. This story takes place in August of 2013, in the mountains of Southern Oregon. I am a USAF Security Forces Airman Military Policeman. My girlfriend was at work, and as a swelteringly hot day began to turn into thunderstorms, my buddy Nick, another military cop, and I decided to go explore some back roads and get out of the heat in town. Southern Oregon is crisscrossed with logging roads, some actively used, and many totally forgotten and grown over. Nick and I spent many of our days off starting on roads that we knew, finding roads we didn't know, driving for hours into the mountains, eventually navigating back to paved roads. On this particular day, with storm clouds building over the mountains, we set off on a road we had never been on and began the drive into the mountains. After driving for around an hour, we hadn't seen nor heard any signs of other people in the woods. We rounded a bend in the thick fir woods and emerged in a meadow that was totally surrounded by thick aspen groves. The meadow was perfectly flat and eerily still. We both noticed the strange stillness almost immediately. No birds, hardly any insect noise, no squirrels, and certainly no other people. On the far side of the meadow, right at the edge of the tree line, there was a picnic table. The table was very odd, however. It was painted a bright orange, 
and was much larger than a typical picnic table in a park. Remarking on this, Nick drove through the meadow to get a closer look. I remember being apprehensive as we approached. The whole scenario was exceptionally strange. The overall silence of the Aspen Grove was unsettling. Also, it was nearly impossible to see far into the trees as aspens grow extremely close together. When we parked by the table, I hopped out of the passenger seat of the truck to check it out. I'm not very tall, only about 5 feet 5, regardless, the table was ridiculously oversized and practically unusable. The seats were nearly at chest level, meaning I would have to climb up to even sit on them. As I was looking at the table, Nick called me over to the truck, and I noticed he was looking back into the aspens. At first I couldn't see what he was looking at, but then I noticed a splash of color that was completely out of place in the thick trees. A small one-man tent was set back in the trees, about 50 feet from the strange table. I had an initial feeling of dread, and felt certain that there was someone in the tent, and if we could see the tent, they could see us. There were no campgrounds in this area, no people, no main roads for miles. Surely someone camping so remotely would be, at the very least, a strange person. However, as we observed the tent, we didn't see any movement or hear any sounds coming from it. Nick suggested I call out. I didn't want to, but I did. Hey, anyone in there? I yelled. No reply. Feeling completely on edge, Nick and I thought about driving away and leaving this strange area. But we began to fear the worst. What if there was a body in the tent? What if somebody had gotten kidnapped? Foolish, I know, but we thought it all the same. After some debate, we decided to have Nick turn the truck around to drive away from the camp. Should we need to leave in a hurry, he would be waiting behind the wheel. With my heart pounding, I started walking through the trees towards the tent. I was totally keyed up with my senses on full alert. When I reached the campsite, several things struck me as odd. Backpacks were scattered all over. No fire had been built, no wood collected. The tent. The tent was literally full of backpacks and women's clothing. Full of dread, I turned to leave and tell Nick what I had seen. As I left, I heard Nick start yelling. Let's go. Let's get the F out of here. Not knowing why he was yelling, I ran back to the truck. When I broke out of the trees, I saw a beat-up old Ford Taurus on the road, blocking us from leaving the meadow. I immediately leapt into the passenger seat, and Nick floored the gas pedal. The car was occupied by two men. A third person was laying against the window in the back. As we drove across the meadow, the driver attempted to block us from the road, but Nick drove around them and accelerated the way we had come from. I looked back and saw the car attempting to turn around on the narrow road. Nick drove like a madman, and though I was honestly terrified that they would catch up, we hit the, the highway without seeing the car again. I still do not know if the person in the back was male or female. I called the state police, and they promised to send a trooper out to check out the scene. However, I received a call the next day from a trooper stating that the campsite, the backpacks, and the women's clothing was all gone, though he could tell people had been in the area. The strange table was still by the thick aspen grove. I have not returned to the area and do not intend to.
This story is my husband's and occurred in the 1970s. He was erecting fences with a mate in rural Springbrook, which is in the Gold Coast hinterland about 70 kilometers south of Brisbane, Queensland, Australia. There's a very hilly region with dense rainforest. They were cutting a fence line when they smelled a horrible stench and heard a noise that sounded like a combination of a pig grunting and a dog growling about 20 meters away. They couldn't see anything due to the dense bush. My husband turned to his mate, who was a big man, to find him already running full speed in the opposite direction. He then took off after him. They returned to the job two days later after stopping at the forest ranger station on the way to ask him if there had been any reports of wild boars in the area. The ranger laughed and said it was possible, and then told them that part of his job was to keep the walking and hiking trails clear of weeds and brush. He'd walk the trails with a machete looking just ahead of him at his feet. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And clearing any unwanted vegetation when he smelled a stench and the hairs on the back of his neck stood up. Looking up, he saw a bipedal brown hairy creature staring at him about 13 meters ahead. He froze and stared at it until it turned and disappeared into the thick scrub. My husband and his mate continued on to the fence job, but did not hear, smell, or see anything again. A few years later, they were working in a similar landscape near the location of the previous encounter. They had heard from several local farmers who had heard similar noises to what they had heard previously and who had seen a hairy bipedal creature run into their paddocks, grab a sheep or a calf, and then run back into the dense forest. There are Yowie researchers who have had similar encounters and have taken thermal images of a large bipedal creature. We know they exist. When we get the chance, my father and a few of his friends go camping up in Baxter State Park in Maine. For anyone who doesn't know, it's a pretty secluded section of the state and pretty much everything surrounding the park grounds is also wilderness. While up there, we took a hike to some fishing ponds buried deep in the woods. The trails were mostly overgrown, and the destination was a place that you really had to be in the know to find it. My dad's friend who was accompanying is a native Mainer and knows lots of secret fishing spots like that. Needless to say, not too many people walk those trails and the closest town is hours and hours away. Well, anyways, my dad's friend starts talking about this old store in the woods he remembered from his childhood. He said fishermen in the area knew about it, and you could get bait and ice and few other minor conveniences. He said he hadn't been there since childhood, but faintly remembered it being somewhere near where we were. I remember thinking it was bullshit, just a made-up story my dad's friend is a charming guy but he's known to tell some tall tales. Considering how far out in the wilderness we were, I thought it was absolutely ludicrous for any store or any other human for that matter to be nearby. 
I mean the closest road you could take a car on was about two hours from where we were on the trail. But sure enough, about 45 minutes later, we come to this pond and the trail forks. My dad's friend just says, this is it, this is the path to the store, I remember it. So he starts walking down one of the paths, which extended a good ways about half a mile around the perimeter of the pond. We get to a clearing in the woods and it just opens up into this huge field with about 10 of what appeared to be houses or living compounds. It slightly reminded me of that town specter from Big Fish. I was absolutely shocked to see any trace of humanity. If you know the area of Maine I'm talking about, you would be too. The place was completely empty, but none of the buildings looked run down. The whole property was definitely maintained. We started to walk around, and after a couple minutes, this really old guy with a thick Maine accent came out of one of the houses, and my dad's friend went up to talk to him. Turns out the store was real, and we bought some ice and left. I half expected to hear the Twilight Zone theme when I saw this place. Not really creepy, but very mysterious. I'm still shocked that such a strange random place like this exists in the world, and I still have so many unanswered questions to this day. Why so far out in the middle of nowhere? What were all the other buildings for? Where was everyone else? How does this one guy live two hours from the closest road and survive, let alone get any business? I was 61 years old when I had the most unusual encounter of my life. I'm an unassuming man, steady and phlegmatic, with a thick brush of white hair and a craggy outdoorsman's face. I enjoy a pint and a dram, but I never indulge when I'm working. I've spent my entire adult life working as a forester in the Ditchmont Woods located in Livingston, West Lothian, Scotland. On the morning of Friday, November 9, 1979, I set off with my red setter Laura to check the woods on Ditchmont Law for stray sheep and cattle. It was a damp day, and as I parked the van and set off down the forest track, the noise of the Edinburgh-Glasgow motorway was muffled by the thick, dark fir trees. The dog ran ahead, and my trudging Wellingtons made the only sound. Then, as I turned a corner into a clearing filled with light, I saw it an unidentified flying object UFO. The object had a dark gray color, and its texture was like an emery board, with small, brighter, highlighted areas against a darker background. The appearance of the exterior seemed to change, as if the UFO was attempting to camouflage itself. I estimated its size to be around 18-20 feet in diameter and about 12 feet high. It looked as if it was mounted on a ring, resembling a hat with a brim. There were also protruding stems topped by propellers on the outside of the craft. Nothing on the object was moving at the time. Suddenly, two small spheres rushed at me. They were like miniature versions of the large craft, making a sound as they approached with spikes on the outside making contact with the ground. They stopped by my side and attached themselves to my trousers, dragging me back toward the UFO. I was overwhelmed by an extremely strong smell, causing me to struggle for air, and I soon lost consciousness. When I regained consciousness, the UFO and the smaller spheres were gone, but Laura, my red setter, was still with me. She was unsettled, running around and barking madly. As I tried to call out to her, I realized I had no voice. I couldn't stand either. 
Eventually, I crawled back the way I had come for about 300 feet. Gradually, I was able to stand up and walk back to my pickup truck. I attempted to contact the forestry headquarters using my two-way radio, but found that my voice had not yet returned. I tried to drive back home in my pickup truck, but it got stuck in the mud. So I began the long walk back to my house, which was approximately a mile away, and finally arrived at 11.15 a.m. My entire experience had lasted just over an hour. By the time I reached home, my wife was shocked to see my condition covered in mud with torn pants. I began telling her the story of what had happened. She wanted to call the police, but I was against it, considering the subject matter. However, I allowed her to call my job supervisor, Malcolm Drummond, and inform him about the incident. While she made the calls, I took a bath to clean up. Drummond, being eager to find out what had happened, called a physician and immediately drove to my house. He questioned me while I was still in the bathtub. We both agreed that there must be some kind of physical evidence left on the ground by either the craft or the small spheres, so we headed back to the area to investigate. However, Drummond couldn't find the exact location. Dr. Gordon Adams arrived and examined my condition. He found grazed areas on my left leg and under my chin, but no apparent head injuries. At that time, my body temperature, blood pressure, and other functions seemed normal. Adams called for an ambulance to take me to the hospital for a head x-ray and a counseling session. However, I decided to postpone the hospital visit as I had planned to visit relatives over the weekend and didn't want to miss the trip. Word of the encounter spread, and soon the press caught wind of it. By Sunday, the incident was known all over the United Kingdom, and within a week, it had gained worldwide attention. The story was featured in television documentaries, magazines, and books. Even the company I worked for erected a plaque at the site to commemorate the event, although it was later stolen. The local police, inexperienced in dealing with UFO cases, didn't discount my description of the incident. They took testimony from me, my wife, and Dr. Adams. Due to the assault involved, they sent my clothing from that day for forensic examination. A cursory overview revealed torn pant legs at the hip area, and traces of a powder were found. However, it turned out that the powder was just maize starch transferred from the bag used to send in the trousers. The police also investigated any flights that might have occurred that day, but found no evidence of planes, helicopters, or any other equipment in the area. The ground markings, consisting of two parallel ladder-like tracks with holes, confirmed that something had been on the spot I indicated. I was well respected by people in the area, and there was no reason to believe I would hoax such an incident. I had a history of illnesses and surgeries, but there was nothing in my medical records suggesting head injuries or psychosis. I know what I saw, I insisted. My firm belief in my story led the police to open a criminal investigation for assault, making it the only such case in Britain arising from a UFO sighting. The investigation remains open. My neighbors, however, were more skeptical, and eventually, I decided to move away to an undisclosed address. Nevertheless, I became the most famous witness to aliens in Britain. My trousers were analyzed by psychics at spiritualist meetings, and on the anniversaries of the sighting, UFO spotters would gather in the clearing, hoping for another encounter. 
The aliens didn't stop there. Since that November day, West Lothian skies have been filled with glimmering disks, strange lights, and bouncing fireballs. The Falkirk Triangle now records around 300 UFO sightings a year, more than any other place on Earth. The Forge Restaurant in Bonnybridge, where fireballs sail over the trees and wingless planes are seen in the fields, has become a hotspot. Some experts suggest that West Lothian may be a thin place, offering a window from Earth into another dimension. If we accept my account as true, I was abducted by something otherworldly for about 20 minutes on November 9, 1979. No evidence has emerged to disprove my story. I was respected by those who knew me, and I never sought to profit from my alleged experience. Normally, I get off work right around 10 p.m. This was at night when I saw this. I'm also going to leave my name out of this just in case it could hurt my law enforcement credentials. I don't know what I saw, but it was some sort of canine. I was driving down an isolated road that leads to one house on the other side of the hill. I haven't seen any cars or people on this road. It's more of a way for me to get home quicker without having to go all the way around by using this nifty shortcut. But as I'm coming up the hill on my way home, something in the middle of the road catches my eye. Well, it was more so on the side of the road, trying to make its way towards the middle. Before I even had time to think about stopping or barely swerving, whatever it was was already up against my car with its front paws and claws up against the hood. This thing was huge. I slammed my gas pedal, hoping it would get out of the way, but I began hearing this little rumbling noise like this dog growling at me, so I got out of there fast. This thing went down on all fours from two and was now running alongside my car for a little bit before dropping back down behind me, disappearing into the darkness. Everything about this thing was huge. I can't get over it. It had massive legs and were just big. The entire body was big. Its head was huge. It had a very long snout and pointed ears. It looked kind of like a wolf, but different. The largest wolf I've ever seen. And those eyes, its eyes were from a whole other world. They were bright red. Thanks for listening to my story. Feel free to share it if you'd like, as long as you keep my name out of it. This happened about six months ago. Bit of background, I've grown up on boats and beaches. Family have always had a boat and I have always fished. However, this story didn't happen when I was out in the ocean. I was at a friend's house just after the moon had risen. It was a fairly bright night as I was sitting with a group of friends on a beach house deck. Anyway, none of us had actually taken any drugs or started drinking yet. We had just gotten back to the house. I remember looking out at the view of the beach and the moon. The bright moon was shining a fairly wide path from just below it across the water and onto the beach, but all the other water was dark. You can imagine it like this. Although you could see the occasional wave break as the white wash caught some light. Anyway, I noticed a red light going from left to right. This is strange because a starboard green light should have been showing on that side of any boat at a cracking pace. Like it looked like some serious type of speedboat flying. I pointed this out to my friends and a few of us noted how quick and smooth this boat was flying across the bay. 
It eventually moved near the light of the moon, and as we all watched it fly past, it was literally just a red light, like a giant red ball. As soon as it hit the other side of the moonlight, it disappeared. I kind of assumed it was a drone, but it was seriously quick. It disappeared and was a long way out skimming what looked very close to the water on a surf beach. If anyone actually got this far, thanks for reading. The names in the following account are changed to avoid criminal prosecution. Both I and the man who told me of the incident are holders of now inactive top-secret clearances issued by Department of the Navy Central Adjudication Facility. I don't know if the details of the incident are still classified. This is why I've changed the names. I apologize in advance for the cryptic nature of the story. However, I have known this man I'll call in Jim and served in combat with him for many years. I have and will stake my life on his integrity. People have been misled to believe that these are animals so it's okay to kill them. Some time ago Jim was sent on a tad temporary additional duty to a unit in Alaska. Most of the time there was spent on field daying at this or that location sitting around and passing scuttlebutt rumors about the nature of their purpose there. The official title is simply Security Force Training was conducted on target acquisition field navigation and winter survival alert drills were called almost daily. Jim and his platoon responded to the alert as always. Only this time the truck they had boarded started pulling out. He said they rode from 15 to 20 minutes to get out there in the middle of a huge valley, at which point they were told to follow an officer and a civilian guide. He and the others walked quickly at first for about a mile, and then were told to be quiet. They're also told to check their weapons standard M16s of fours, and one guy had an M40 and a 762 by 51 millimeter bolt action rifle. They were told they were there to kill an animal that was a threat to the compound and local residences. Jim told me that he had been on edge until that point because he didn't know what they were up against, but that a hunt for a bear or something was a relief. They spread out in a skirmished line and moved forward slowly and quietly with the guide about 20 yards in front of them. They had advanced that way about 150 yards when the guide stopped. They were just inside a tree line on the edge of a large meadow. As the line got to the guide, Jim said he saw what looked like a dark brown bear about another 50 yards into the meadow. The officer pointed to the bear and indicated that there was their target at that point. He and the others cycled the bolts on the rifles and took aim. That's when the bear stood up, only it wasn't a bear. He said it was about six feet tall with wide flat shoulders, not the sloping shoulders of a bear, and the legs were too long to be a bear. Its head was humped, and it had a long, and it had long arms It turned its head and looked at them. No one fired a shot. The thing grabbed something off the ground and started running away. That's when he saw the second one smaller, in his words about maybe four or five feet tall following the big one. They were quick too. The officer in charge hollered shoot and we opened fire. The first to go down was a smaller one. The big one stopped while still under fire and went back to the small one, dropped to a knee, and let out what Jim described as the cry of a mother over her dying child. I saw the hair on his arm stand up when he said, I kid you not. The rest of the story was told to me with his head down, unable to look me in the eyes. We stopped firing when the mother cried out, 
but the officer ordered us to kill it, so we resumed fire. The mother refused to leave the downed child and took what he said was around 90 to 100 more rounds, and she finally went down. No one moved forward, but they stopped firing and reloaded. He said, we held our position for, I don't know, about 10 or so more minutes. That's when the officer started to walk toward it. The guy told him to stay there, wait, and give us some time to be sure it was dead. About an hour passed with no one talking, he said we couldn't even look at each other. My gut was churning the whole time and I wanted to throw up. Finally, the guide and the officer walked to the bodies and confirmed the kill. The rest of the platoon were not allowed to view the bodies, but were ordered back to the truck. On the way back to the compound, he saw other military vehicles heading toward the site, but they weren't from his compound. He said, I don't know where they came from. I mean, we were the only military in the area. Upon returning to the compound, he and the rest of the platoon were debriefed one by one and told not to talk to anyone about the mission under threat of a life sentence in Leavenworth. Both Jim and I are retired and both our wives have passed, so we don't have much to lose. It took a couple of shots of Jack Daniels and some other war stories to get to this one, but I swear every word is true. Jim doesn't lie and neither do I, and I'll have words with any man who says this didn't happen. People need to know these are not animals. They are just as human as you or me. I don't know how they came to be and I don't care. I just want people to know. I woke up to the sound of footsteps outside my bedroom door. My heart was pounding as I tried to listen carefully. The footsteps seemed to be getting closer. I was paralyzed with fear, wondering who could be walking around my house at this time of night. I quietly slipped out of bed and peered through my bedroom door, trying to catch a glimpse of whoever or whatever was walking around my house. But the darkness was too thick and I couldn't see anything. Suddenly I heard a loud creaking noise and I realized that someone was opening the door to my bedroom. I didn't know what to do. Should I run or confront the person? But as the door opened, I saw nobody there. The hairs on the back of my neck stood up and my heart was racing even faster than before. I slowly walked towards the door, trying to be as quiet as possible. My hands were shaking and my mind was racing with fear and confusion. Was this a dream or was someone really in my house? As I stepped out of my room, I could hear a strange noise like a soft whisper coming from the darkness. It sounded like someone was breathing heavily right outside my door. My heart was pounding so hard that I couldn't think straight. I stumbled backwards and ended up falling down the stairs. I felt myself tumbling downwards, seemingly in slow motion, until I hit the bottom with a loud thud. I looked up to see a shadowy figure standing over me, and my heart stopped. I couldn't move or scream. The figure slowly started to take shape, revealing itself to be a person, but their face was completely covered. I couldn't see who it was, but I knew I was in danger. I tried to crawl away, but the figure caught up to me and reached out, grabbing me by the hair. I screamed in terror, but no sound came out. I felt like I was drowning in my own fear as the figure slowly dragged me towards my bedroom. That was the last thing I remembered before waking up in the hospital. The doctors told me that I had suffered a concussion, but I couldn't help thinking about who or what had come into my house that night. 
The memory of those footsteps, the whispers in the darkness, and the figure that had haunted my nightmares ever since has never left me. To this day, I still wonder what could be lurking in the shadows of my home, waiting to strike again. first time hunting about six years ago in my early 20s. I was with two friends from high school that I hadn't seen in a few years. One of the guys, say his name is Freddy, had gone silent on me and my other friend, let's say Jacob. Freddy came back into town and went drinking with Jacob. Jacob calls me saying Freddy is back and wants to go camping. Turns into hunting pretty quick. Here's the weird part. Freddy had this unmistakable scar over his eye, like he'd been in a fight with a guy and like the movies. The knife was pressed down. I'd asked Jacob and he hadn't checked as to why, but we found out pretty quick the guy was nuts, so who knows. Freddy says he remembered hunting there with his dad. Mind you, we were supposed to be camping. He said the location was just up the way. A few shots of tequila and about five more just up the ways and Freddy stops. He looks back. I realize it's twilight and darkness is falling on us fast. Freddy, Jacob, I think this is where it happened. Jacob looks back at me bewildered. Jacob, what's that man, Freddy, where it almost killed me? About that time, the tequila buzz amped up and I laughed out loud. Turns out Freddy didn't like this and took off running. We try to catch up, but he's like gone, gone. So drunk Jacob and I had to pop open our easy setup tent and stay the night in Bum F, Montana. Jacob and I start talking about Freddy, his history, the I and where the F he went to. Throughout the night, we heard what we thought for sure was him. Same cough and all. We start laughing about old times and must have passed out. I hear a zipper and see a dim light through the film of the tent. It's Freddy. Hey guys, get the F up. I'm freaking out. Buzz had worn off, but Jacob and I were totally confused. Freddy. My friend Sam doesn't believe me when I tell him I got friends. Or something to that effect. Sam turned out to be a deep woodsman from the back country. A true hillbilly hick in every sense. Dude smelled like compost and I couldn't see much of him, just silhouette. Jacob pulls a gun and tells them to F off. We get out, leaving everything behind. I was still a bit too drunk to process what happened. The sun comes up and we hit the main road again after what was probably two hours if walking. I sober up completely and Jacob tells me something that I still remember. He said he never drank the tequila, only I did, and that when I started rambling all weird, he knew Freddy had slipped us something. Freddy never had a friend with him, turns out I hallucinated it. I guess he had slipped me something that made me hallucinate all the conversations and everything. The one accurate part I got right was Freddy had taken off running, but it wasn't long. He came back, telling Jacob he led us out there to hunt us and wanted us to run. Jacob pulled his gun he had packed against my wishes and freaked old Freddy out, and he ran off for good. It was a rough end to what was a decent friendship in school. No telling what his scar was from and what happened to him, but we clearly lost all contact, and I bought Jacob a real shot of tequila after we got back into town the next weekend. He saved me. The kicker was he didn't even have any bullets in the gun. He said he forgot to load it. 
still freaks me out. 